<laughs> okay. Let's see. Homework one, homework four, you don't need to worry about that. Quiz four, that's the other one, you don't need to worry about that. So those things don't apply to you. Only, the, only those three apply to this class. So we have a quiz next week. We have a homework four due next week. Remembered it this time. Sorry. Sorry I remembered it, right? And then we have another quiz. So you're probably going to have quiz week, quiz week, quiz week as we're getting, getting caught up there. But we're really, we're really just about on schedule. We're slightly behind where we're supposed to be, but not, not all that much. So I will give you homework four. Homework four only has eight questions on it, but it does have a yucky equation on it. So sorry. <laughs> I know you love that. So. But we'll probably, I probably won't get through that this week because I'm going to go finish this chapter. Oh, sure. Okay. So, go. So there is an equation. I probably won't get through the equation until sometime the beginning of next week. So I will go over that with you. So except for questions six and seven. Okay. 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 Ready? Okay. So that's what's coming up due. Picture of the day for today. Any ideas? It's a telescope. Yes, it is a telescope, actually. Star trails in front of a telescope. Well, what kind of telescope? When I tell you what kind of telescope it is, you're going to find out I lied to you a little bit. Sort of. No, it's actually a gamma ray telescope. But I, but I lied to you. Didn't I tell you you couldn't have gamma rays to gamma rays? You couldn't observe from the surface of the Earth. Well, this is def that's sure looks like it's on the surface of the Earth to me, right? It is, but it doesn't observe gamma rays directly. So, but it was interesting because I hadn't, you know, it gives me something to bring into class next time, to talk about next time when I do telescopes. But it actually does observe, it observes the gamma rays as they interact with the Earth's atmosphere. So when they strike the Earth's atmosphere, they'll get a little spark of light. They'll cause the atoms, to the atoms in that area to glow. And this telescope can detect that glow, which is called, I think it is, Cherenkov radiation. After the astronomer who had discovered it, or physicist. And it actually detects that. So it's actually one way you can observe gamma rays from space, albeit indirectly, actually on the surface of the Earth. So, so you can technically observe gamma rays from the surface of the Earth, but they don't make it through the atmosphere. So I lied, but I didn't lie. You can't really see those gamma rays, but you can detect them, their interactions with the telescopes. And you do see the star trails. And we've talked about those before. So if you take a camera and point it at the sky, nice dark sight, and leave it open, if you can leave it open for 5, 10, 20 minutes, you can actually see the Earth, determine the Earth rotating. You'll actually see a trail on the image instead of a point, instead of, a point of light for the star. The longer you leave it open, again, you have to put it on a tripod unless you're really rock solid at holding it steady for 10 minutes, especially when it's on a nice cold night, you start to shiver. Then you get all sorts of interesting patterns in, the, in, your, in your image. But if you put it, on, put it on a tripod, leave it open for 
you know, 20 minutes even, you can easily see the trails of the stars. And it's kind of cool the way the picture does it because you actually get them reflected in the mirrors of the telescopes. You actually see the star trails on the sky and then reflected in the mirror of the telescope. So it's sort of interesting the way it was, the way it was taken. Okay, questions, questions. Oh, the other thing we have due, I didn't put up there for you, is the exam. If you weren't here last time, Wednesday, I'll go down and get the exams between classes or after in the lab class, you can have them. But I do need those back by Monday if you're going to do the corrections on it. So if you've turned it in, I got one already. If you've got them, turned it in. If, you, if I do get them in today, I will try to look at them and update your grade before I submit midterms because yours is the only class I haven't done midterm grades for yet. I was waiting to see how many people give it to me today. You know, if everybody gives it to me, I might not get them all done. But midterm grades have to be in by like noon on Monday. So I'm probably not, it, it just means you're, it won't change your grade. It'll just be a little bit lower initially. Yeah? Can we email Yeah. You can, but I need the originals too. So if you could, if you could scan it and email me the whole thing. Okay. But I need to be able to see what you had right. wrong in the first, because if it was a comment in something, I need to see both. Now if you want to scan them all and send them all to me, that's fine. Okay. And I will try to get those updated this weekend. But if I get them all, you know, if I get them all by 10 o'clock on Monday, it's going to be pushing it to get them done, looked at, updated, and do it. Only thing it means is that you might get your grade average in a little bit lower right now. Again, nobody sees the midterm grades except you guys, as far as, as, far as I know at least. You know, it's, it's, you, it's you guys that get to see it as a progress as to where you are at the moment. So if it's a little bit lower, it's a little bit lower, but that means you got a bonus for the second half of the semester because you'll get a few extra points that are essentially, if you look at your grade right now, which you can. I should have told the other class too. You can see your current grades on the system now. So if you go into WebCT, it'll show you your current grade percentage as of everything that we've done so far. And with this class it works out good because you've got all the labs are part of mine too, so you've got everything on there. So you can actually see everything on there. You can see where you are. So if you're at 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 percent, and then I update that each day, you know, I put in, except when I forget, like I didn't realize I didn't put in Wednesday's attendance until this morning. So it is in there now though. All right, questions? But yeah, do get that to me. If you've got it today, I'll be happy to take it. If not, you have the weekend to work on it. Give it to me Monday. The only thing is, I said, it will probably skew your grade a little bit low at that, at before when I have to put midterms in. But. All right, well, we had looked at stellar sizes last time. So we had finished up here, and we'd looked at this one. I know. So we had looked at the different sizes, just to get some ideas of these great big stars, you know. A typical star like the sun, which is, sun has a size of one, one solar radius. We like to measure things in terms of the sun and the earth because that's what we're used to. And then there's these other stars that are the star Sirius, bright star in the winter sky, is twice as big as the sun. Spica, th seven times as big. Capella is 15. Aldebaran in Taurus is 40 times bigger. Antares in Scorpius is 500 times the size of the sun. And Antares isn't nearly the biggest star in the universe. There are stars that are bigger than that. And Antares for comparison is this is the center down there. There would be the Earth's orbit. There would be Mars's orbit. So if you took Antares and put it in the solar system, it would swallow up all of the terrestrial planets. They'd be, that, si that size distance would all be within the, within the star itself. And there's also littler stars. There's Barnard's star, which we looked at a little bit last time. It's only about two-tenths the size of the sun. Jupiter is about one-tenth. 
So Barnard's star isn't that much bigger than Jupiter. Proxima Centauri, the nearest star to the Sun, is actually smaller than Jupiter. So it's actually a star, but it's smaller than Jupiter. Sirius B is even a lot smaller than Jupiter. It's only about a tenth the size of Jupiter. Now Sirius B is an unusual star, and we'll talk about these coming up here over the next couple of weeks, but Sirius B is what we call, well we'll mention it again in a few minutes, but it's called a white dwarf star. So Sirius B is the first, first notion we've had of a dead star. And in terms of living in dead stars, if we talk about a currently active star that's producing energy, and producing bring hydrogen to helium or has some energy source at its core, Sirius B doesn't. It's just the dead core of a star. So it's gone through these stages. Sirius B was probably something like one of these big supergiants and the outer layers got pushed off into space and what's left down there is the very hot core, but it's just a core, a really dense core of material. There's no energy being produced in it. It's actually solid. You know, it's something you could you wouldn't want to, but you could land on it. You'd melt instantly because it's going to be minimally tens of thousands to hundreds of thousands of degrees on the surface, so you wouldn't be, but, but there's a solid surface there. You also wouldn't want to land on it because the gravity starts to get very intense. So it gets very, very strong gravity. So even if it wasn't so hot, you could land on it, you wouldn't be able to move around very well because the gravity would be many, many, many times the gravity on the Earth. Okay, so that was what we finished up with last time. Now what we're going to do today, and probably Monday, I'm going to go back and do this all again. So we're going to go through this twice because you're going to see these diagrams a lot over the coming weeks, is the Hertzsprung-Russell diagram. So what a Hertzsprung-Russell diagram is, is it plots, it looks at stars, and it looks at two properties of the stars. It looks at their luminosity, so how bright they really are, Remember luminosity, there was luminosity and apparent magnitudes that we talked about. Luminosity was how much energy that star is really putting out. So how much energy comes out of each square meter of its surface. So it plots that, so there's stars like the sun which should give one solar luminosity. Makes it easier to remember than some big, big old number that you have to try to memorize. Sun is one, so you compare everything to the sun. Alpha Centauri little bit brighter than the Sun, puts out a little bit more energy. Number of these stars put out a lot more. Few of the stars put out a heck of a lot less. So that plots the one axis. On the other axis, you plot the temperature. You notice how astronomers are backwards, right? You notice the temperature plot there? That's not the way you'd normally do it, is it? Hot temperatures are on the left, 30,000 degrees, and it goes down to 3,000 degrees on the right. So, astronomers plot it backwards. Normally you put your small numbers over here, right? Normally it would be like this. Nope, we've got to do it the other way around. Can't, can't make it easy. So, you plot the temperatures. Hottest to the left, coolest to the right. So, and when you look at that, there's no pattern, right? We'll see some patterns. This is just happens to be a few random stars put together. There's a few very close stars, like Barnard star, Proxima Centauri, Sirius A, B, Alpha, these are all close stars to us. Some of these other stars are actually quite far away. But when we start to look at them in more detail, we'll start to see some patterns. So here we're going to plot the 80 closest stars to us. 
So we take the 80 nearest stars. There's our sun still. Sun's right there. You got Alpha Centauri, Procyon, Altair, Sirius. You got a few stars that are a little brighter than the sun. But if you notice, of those 80 stars, there's what? One, two, three, four that are brighter than the sun. So among the nearby stars, the sun's a big bright star. Among these 80 nearest stars, the sun is, one of the, is definitely one of the brighter. And there's a whole lot of these much cooler and fainter stars. And a few of these white dwarfs, a few of these interesting ones over there that we'll talk about. What we call that, this sort of line, this little curve here, is called the main sequence. So that is where we're going to find most of the stars lying. So they'll go on a little curve going from very cool faint stars up to very bright hot stars. We just don't see too many. We don't see many of those close to us. Again, this is only the 80 nearest stars. But most of the stars are going to be here. The other thing that we see near us are some white dwarfs. They're extremely hot. 7,000, 9,000, 10,000, 20 some thousand degrees. So they can be very, very hot. They can get hotter than that too. They can be hundreds of thousands of degrees when they first form. But they're very, very faint. These stars are about the size of the Earth. So it's the material from the Sun, all the matter that's in the Sun, squished down to the size of the Earth. And we looked at the, we looked at the, we looked at the atoms. We haven't gotten quite to, the, quite to the level of pushing all the space out of the atom yet. But here you're pushing out all the spaces between the atoms. So you're pushing those atoms as close as they can physically be together. So remember all that space that was between the, the nucleus and the electron? We're not getting rid of that yet. We're just squishing all the material as close as they can possibly be. Because those electrons are all negatively charged. They don't want to go close together. So if you try to push two of them close together, they push apart. You've got them as close as they can physically be without crushing them in. And if you take something like the sun and crush it down, it'll be about the size of the Earth. So these stars are very tiny. The only reason we see them at all, because they should be so faint if they're that small, is because they are so incredibly hot. Their temperatures are very, very high. Now if we look at the 100 brightest stars, we see something completely different. If we just go look at the brightest stars in the sky, our sun's still there because it's one of the brightest stars in the sky. But now our sun is nothing. We're the faintest of all. We're the faintest and coolest of all, well not the coolest, faintest of all of those stars. We're not the coolest, but we're definitely the faintest. In terms of luminosity and how much energy they're putting out, every single one of those hundred brightest stars is putting out more energy than the sun. The only one that's even close to us is Alpha Centauri. If you take that out, take these two closest ones out, there's a big gap. We're not much of a star. So sun's kind of got this you know, schizophrenic life. Is it the brightest star in this? Is it the brightest star and big star? As we looked at the nearest stars, when we look at the brightest stars, it's nothing. You know, it's an incredibly cool little star. But now we start to see some other parts forming of this HR diagram. So we have the main sequence still here. We don't see any white dwarfs. They're still there, but they're not, not going to be any of the brightest objects in the sky. But we start to see what we call the red giant region. These are red giants. They're going to be red stars because they're so cool. Their temperatures are only three and 4,000 degrees. But 
So in order to be so cool, in order for them to look so bright, they have to be giant. And they can be, as we looked at, we looked at some that were ten times the size of the sun, you know, small giant stars, to super giant stars that are hundreds or five hundred to a thousand times the size of the sun. Incredibly large stars, as you go up to this corner, you go from ten times the size, a hundred times, and you're pushing up towards a thousand times at the end of the edge of this diagram. And you also see there's more stars on the main sequence up here. You see a few of them that re repeat, right? There's Sirius A again, uh, Procyon A, we saw a couple of those before. And it goes up into what we call the blue giant region. That's sort of the tip of the main sequence there. So you're seeing two different groupings of stars. You're seeing the brightest stars in the sky are really special stars. I mean, they're the unusual stars. Stars like the sun are more typical, but the sun is actually brighter than many of those stars, as we saw on the previous slide. The sun is actually brighter than what? All but one, two, three, four of the other stars nearby us. So the sun is one of the brightest of the, near, of the nearby stars. So those stars are really, really bright, but they're only so bright because they are really luminous. They're incredibly luminous, so we can see them easily hundreds of light years away. We can see them hundreds of light years away. They can still be incredibly bright. Whereas something like the sun, if you were to take the sun and put it 100 light years away, it wouldn't be visible. To the naked eye, yes, you put a telescope, you could see it, but it would be some little faint star, you know, like we see Barnard's star here. And it's not a star we knew about until telescopes were invented. They're too faint. The sun would be like that. If you were to travel to you know, a planet circling, say, one of these stars, you know, the sun would be a little nothing faint catalog star number or whatever. You know, it wouldn't be anything special. If we do even more stars, 20,000 stars, we start to get a little bit more. So we just look at a bigger sample of stars, you see sun's more here in the middle. That's when you start to say the sun is more of a typical star. You've got a lot of stars brighter than the sun. You've got the red giants over here. You've got the rest of the main sequence and the blue giants over there. And then you go down to the fainter stars. Now this isn't even done to scale because honestly, if you go further down, more, you get, this should be even more and more stars. Most of the stars we see are way down at the bottom end of this main sequence. Most of the stars in the universe are very little, tiny, faint red stars. They're just hard to see because they're tiny and little and faint. And even if they're close to us, they're not the brightest stars in the sky. So you have to be able to study and get a good, if they were hundreds of light years away, they might not, they wouldn't even be visible by the Hubble telescope. You know, just a few hundred light years away, they'd be faint enough that you would not be able to see them. So what do we study? Of course, you study the big bright stuff that you see easily. Most of the stars are on the main sequence. So when you look at all the stars and you catalog, just take a uniform sample of stars in the sky, about 90% of them will fall along the main sequence. So 90% of them will fall from here to here, about 1% up here. So as you can see, the, the picture is not to scale. It's not, you know, really telling you exactly the percentages. If you actually go and count all the stars, or as many stars as you can, you'll see that the vast majority of them are on the main sequence. And what you're missing, again, is a lot of stars that would be down on this lower part of it. About 9% up here, 
and maybe 1% down in the white dwarfs. Again, you're getting a, an effective selection. You can't see those white dwarfs very well either. They're very small. They're not putting out a lot of energy. They're putting out, well that would be 1 one-hundredth, so 1 one-thousandth the energy of the sun. So if the sun isn't visible very far away, how are these things going to be visible? And the only reason they're even that bright is because they are so hot. If it has no energy source, remember the sun has an energy source. It's converting hydrogen to helium to keep it at a constant temperature. What's going to happen to it if it doesn't have an energy source? What would happen to it to something if you had it there with no energy source? It's going to cool down. So over time, over millions and billions of years, this star that was you know, 20,000 degrees is going to go down to 10,000 degrees. And if it goes down in temperature, it's also going to get fainter. And then down to 6,000, eventually it's going to get so cool that it wouldn't be visible at all. Okay. Now we'll come back. That was, a, that was a brief overview of the HR diagram. The next thing we have coming up, if we started, I don't know if we started today or not, but Monday for sure, I'll go through a complete detail of more of the HR diagram. So you're going to see that again. That was just a quick little overview for you. Next is on the distances. Spectroscopic parallax. Nothing to do with parallax, even though it says it in the title, right? Spectroscopic parallax. You'll see astronomers use parallax in terms of, in, as sort of a, in, in place of distance. It's a way of determining distances. Parallax, remember, was how we determined distances. We looked at a nearby star relative to the distant stars, and we observed it from one point of view it was there against the stars and six months later it was there and we could measure that shift, right? We looked at that a little while ago. So we could measure parallax. That, that is parallax. But a lot of other distance determinations astronomers also call some kind of parallax because it is a spectroscopic method using the spectrum of a star to find its distance. So we do a couple different things. It's a three-step process. And you don't have to, I want you to know how it works. It's not something you have to actually go and do. Well, in a way, you do it on one of the homework assignments. We don't do the calculations on, the, on an exam or anything. So you measure the star's apparent magnitude and spectral class. We like those. Those are nice, easy things to get. Apparent magnitude is how bright the star looks to us on the sky. That's very easy to measure. It's very difficult to get absolute magnitude. How much light is that star really putting out every second per unit area of its surface? That's hard to get. Apparent magnitude is easy. Put a counter up there, you put a, take your detector, count how many little photons come from that star every second, and you know how bright it appears to be. That's easy. Spectral class, relatively easy. Not quite as easy, but take a spectrum of the star and you classify it. We're going to look at that a little bit in a few minutes, or in a few minutes or the beginning of the lab class. I have one exercise to show you with that. But, so you go ahead and you can do that. So those are very, these two are very easy to determine. You can very easily measure those two things. So we like that. It's nice and easy to measure. We can actually use that and we can use that to determine the distance. What we find is that we, once we do that, we can then use the spectral class to figure out its luminosity. And I'll come back to this in just a second. But how do we do that? Well, if we determine the spectral class, I said we plotted temperature here. Well, temperature and spectral classes are related. 
So you could also plot the spectral class of the star. So if you determine that it is a K star, or maybe more specifically a K2, because you can split these up, K0 through K9, G0 through G9, F0 through F9 in between, and you could find out where that applies. That means a certain temperature, and it's, so it's here on the main sequence, and if it's here on the main sequence, it's got some luminosity. And you can determine the distance. Is it perfect? No. Because you can see there's a big range there, right? But you can get a pretty good estimate of the distances. And remember, with this, there's no other, how else are we going to get distances to the stars? You know, get our, get our super light, hyper light speed spaceship and take our big long tape measure and measure how far it is from the Earth to the star, right? There's no way we can get them. So, this, so even though it's not perfect, because each spectral class might have a little bit of a range, we can still get a range of distances, and they're not that far. It's not going to say, well, maybe it's 50 light years and maybe it's 200 light years away. But you might not be able to narrow it down exactly to the inch or to the millimeter as to how far away the, the star is. Okay, go back. So we can use that. We use the spectral class to estimate how bright, to estimate how bright that star really is. So there's a relationship between the temperature and the luminosity. That is our main sequence. That's that curve of the main sequence. And then we can use the inverse square law to determine distance. So once we know the apparent magnitude, we know the luminosity or the absolute magnitude. Did I mention the term? Did I give the term absolute magnitude? I don't remember if I did I? Okay. Absolute magnitude is, is, the, is, the, is, the, is, the, is the magnitude that's related to the luminosity. So if you convert that luminosity number into a magnitude, it's called the absolute magnitude. It's how bright that star would be if it were a specified distance away from us. Okay. So we use that, and we can use that, and actually that's, that's your home, one of your homework questions on there, that yucky equation is actually sort of using that to determine the distances. So you can actually determine. If you know a star's apparent magnitude and its absolute magnitude, then you can determine the distances. So what does that do to our distance scale? And again, this is just starting, right? We're gonna come, you're going to see this probably, well, maybe not the last, couple cl last class or two because we've got a, one chapter at the end, but towards the end of the chapters we're still doing, we'll still be showing this little pyramid and inverted pyramid and it just gets bigger and bigger as we find different methods of distance. So we had radar ranging, well that worked to determine the distance to the moon, maybe to Venus, Mars, something that's close to us. Doesn't work for anything outside, outside the very inner part of the solar system. And then we looked at stellar parallax. That's what I drew up on the board again. So we look at a star here. We look at a star six months later. It looks like it shifts. And it's only shifting because it's so much closer than the other stars. So if we measure that shift relative to very distant stars, then we can determine exactly how far it is away. That's a good method just using geometry that gives us an exact distance. As accurately as you can measure that shift, which remember is really tiny, Less than one second of arc, so less than one three thousand six hundredth of a degree, that's for the nearest star. And then our next one is spectroscopic parallax. So distances here, that was in the inner solar system. This will get us out to 200 parsecs. Parsecs about a little over three light years, so about 600 light years. 
There's a bunch of stars in six within 600 light years, but not a, not a, not millions and millions and millions of them. Spectroscopic parallax, we can use any place as long as we can determine the spectral class of the star, as long as we can get enough light from it that it's not so far away that we can't separate it and see its, get its spectral class. So as long as it's close enough to get that spectral class, we can use that. So that gets us out to 10,000 parsecs, 30,000 or so light years, 32,000 light years. Still isn't very big. It's a long way, right? Light travels a long ways in 32,000 years. But that's still well within the confines of our galaxy. So we haven't even, this distance scale gets us to our local portion of our galaxy to determine distances. We need other methods if we're going to determine distances further out. And there's another four or five. Four or five to come. Okay. Now, one of the confusions there with this, because I told you you could use this spectroscopic parallax is that you took, a, you took the spectral class of the star and said, well, okay, here it is, it's this luminous. But, remember the red giants, right? There were red giants up there. So how do I know if it's a temperature, if it's a temperature of 6,000, or say of 3,000 degrees, there's a big difference in luminosity between a 3,000 degree star that's down here on the main sequence versus something like Betelgeuse, which is a 3,000 degree star way up here in the supergiants. You know, that's 10,000 times more luminous than the sun. That's 10,000 times less luminous than the sun. 10,000 times 10,000 is what, a million? That's a million, that's a, that's a big difference. That'll, that'll cause you some errors in trying to determine this. So you have to try to figure out, you also not only have to class it by temperature, but they also classify the stars by luminosity. So for example, the sun, the spectral class of the sun is a G2. So it's a G star, is the primary letter of the spectral class, and then it's a 2 because after the G you could put 0, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. And no, they didn't mess up the numbers and go, you know, 3, 8, 6, 2, 1. That would have been nice to try to memorize, wouldn't it? Try to keep track of that? No. Numbers go 0 through 9, nice and easy to remember. You just got to keep track of the OBAFGKM and that confusion. So the sun is a G2. But it also has a luminosity, and the luminosity class is given by a Roman letter after that, and the sun is a G25, G2V star, 5 being a main sequence star. So when you do the spectral classes, a 5 is a main sequence star, a 3 is a giant star, and a 1 is a supergiant star. Those are the primary ones. Yes, there's one, two, three, and four, one, two, three, four, five. But really, most stars are either main sequence, and most of the stars are main sequence stars. There's a few and a good number of giant stars, but there are some that are in between. So, like the giants are up here, and the main sequence. Well, there are some, there are a few that are in between. So there is a subgiant too. But you have to class. So you have to also find a way to classify, even though it's a specific temperature, which of these branches it falls on. Once you know which one, then you can determine the luminosity. You can say, oh, it's a supergiant star. Well, it's so many times more luminous than the sun. I can calculate the distance. Or no, it's a dwarf star. It's so many more times less luminous than the sun, and I can still calculate the distance. 
the way we classify the luminosity class is by how spread out the lines are. When you look at, so the lines will be exactly the same. This is a supergiant star, this is a main sequence star. Can you see the pattern of lines is exactly the same? It didn't change. Say the same pattern of lines because it's the same temperature. But in a supergiant star, they're much narrower. So a supergiant star is very narrow lines and a dwarf star like the sun would have much broader lines. That happens because the atmosphere of the dwarf, of the dwarf star or the main sequence star, it's much more compacted. So it actually has, it gets, the lines get broadened just because of the motions of the atoms around them. When you get to a supergiant star, then the atmosphere is very, very thin and the atoms don't interact with each other near as much, so you get very nice, sharp, distinct lines. So how distinct these lines are tells you where you fall along the sequence this way. The temperature tells you how you fall along the sequence this way. And again, as I said, probably starting, you know, probably, we'll probably get to start it today. I'll go through the HR diagram and we'll go through the details of that a little bit more. But there also is a luminosity class. So it's spectral type. This tells you this is the temperature. And this last part tells you the luminosity. So you could also have a star that is a G2, 3, which would, be, which would mean its spectral characteristics and its temperature is exactly like the sun. So it's exactly the same temperature. It would have the same types of spectral lines. It would look just like the sun, but its lines would be a little bit thinner and if you actually figure it out, it's a much bigger star than the sun. It might be 50 times bigger than the sun. And if you went all the way up to a G21, then it might be hundreds of times bigger than the sun. And again, as I said, they're subdivided more. There's actually 1A, 1B, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Really, for most part, you need to worry about 1s. Those are supergiants. 3s are giants. And 5s are main sequence stars. So those are the three major ones, 1, 3, and 5. There's a little bit more, you can put a little bit more detail to it, but you don't need to worry about, about those. So here's the example, and I think they do it as a K star, so a K2 star. Pretty much the same temperature, so just about the same class. 4,900 degrees to 4,300 degrees not changing all that much. They're within a little over about 10, a little more than 10% of each other. But see how, other, see how everything else changes. So the temperature is roughly the same. Varies a little bit, yes. But look at the luminosity. 0.3, so that's actually, this first one is actually fainter than the sun, intrinsically. That's a K2 main sequence star. And so it's fainter. But these other ones with similar temperatures can be 100 times more luminous than the sun or 4,000 times more luminous than the sun. And how much bigger they can be. This one's actually smaller than the sun. Here's 20 times bigger, 140 times bigger. So in terms of the typical sizes of stars, the sun is a very, very small star. There are many stars that are tremendously bigger than the sun. But that is one way we can tell. So when we look at those two classes, not just the temperature that I started talking about, not just the temperature class, that won't tell you. 
So you can't use that to get the spectroscopic parallax. If all I can tell you is it's a G2 star, you can't tell me what its, what its distance is because you don't know whether it's a main sequence star, a giant star, or a supergiant star. And it makes a big difference as to how far away it's going to be because this thing's a heck of a lot brighter. So if all three of these stars appear just as bright on the sky, well this one's a lot further away. Because it's so much, putting out so much energy, if in order for it to look as bright as this little faint little nothing star like the sun, it's got to be a lot further away. Okay. Last thing we can determine. So distances are tough, masses are even, even tougher. Trying to get the mass of a star. You know, the only way we can do it, you know, no big scales out there to weigh it. Plus there's not, no gravity pulling against it so it's not going to have a weight. But the only way we can get the mass of a star is if something is orbiting it or it's orbiting something. If a star is there all by itself, we have no way to determine its mass other than by looking at other similar stars and saying, well, this star is you know, twice the mass of the sun and that's the same type of star. It's the G25, so it's, prob you know, it's probably about twice the mass, but we have no way to actually do that measurement. If we look at the stars that are orbiting each other, and there's an example shown here of a binary star where you can actually watch. You can actually take pictures of it and in 1948 you can see how the stars, there's a brighter star and a fainter star. Seven years later you can see that's moved a little bit. Five years after that and you can see how that star is moving. So you can actually sit there and look at them and watch them orbit. No, not in, you know, our time frames where we can sit there, oh, let's get this done tonight. No, it's a, as you can see, it's a many year project. From 1948 to 1983, it got just back about around to where it would be close to a year. So what is that? About 30, 35 years? Yeah, about 35 years. So about, and that's, there's some that are a lot longer than that, and there's some that could orbit maybe a little faster than that. But that's what we call a visual binary star. That means we can, when we look at it through the telescope, we can see, no, about that one, see both parts, or both stars. We can see two stars. So when we actually look at it through a telescope, we physically see two stars. And if we watch them over time, we can determine their orbit. If we can determine their orbit, then we can use that wonderful Kepler's third law. Remember? G, M1, M2, all that. But then we come, I told you it would come back again. Well, this is how we use it. I'm not making you use it, but I just want you to, as you've seen it, it's the same kind of thing. I can use that and I can determine, you know, you did a lab where you had to do a calculation to calculate the period of an object. But if I measure the period, I can watch them orbit, and yes, it may take me 30 or 40 years to get it, but I can still get that number. Maybe it'll take a couple hundred years to get it. You know, multiple generations of astronomers can work on, me can work on measuring these. And I can determine the period, that's pretty easy. If I can determine the size of the orbit, right, the semi-major axis, if I know those two numbers and I give you those, we know everything We know everything else. The only thing we don't know is the mass. And I can work that equation backwards and then I can measure the mass of this system. 
And that's the only way we have to determine a mass of a star. You have to be able to see it orbiting something else. You could use anything orbiting it. You know, a planet. You know, if a planet's orbiting it, if you send something else into orbit around it, of course we can't, you know, send a probe to another star in a reasonable time frame. But that is one, and that's the easiest one if it's a visual binary. So it's actually a visual binary. You can actually determine the distance, determine the masses directly. Now, not all binaries are so nice to us. Sometimes we see a different type of binary. And we see one here. We can't see the two stars. There's two orbiting each other, but we can't see them separate. We see them as one star. They're too far away, they're too close together to separate them. But we can see that when we take the spectrum. And that's called a spectroscopic binary. So all we're seeing, we see the spectra of two stars. And you can see that it's red shifted one time, blue shifted another time, relative to the two upper and lower ones or where the line should be. Sometimes it shifted this way, sometimes it shifted that way. You might not even see the light from this fainter star. But you can see its effect. You can see how it's pulling on the star and it's pulling it so that sometimes it's orbiting closer to us, sometimes it's further away. These ones are ones that are normally orbiting a lot faster. These ones we can see a lot better. They're orbiting a lot faster. They can orbit in, you know, ye- a couple years maybe or less than a year even as compared to talking when the ones that are far enough apart for us to see when you're talking 50, or 50 years to make a complete orbit perhaps. So that's a spectroscopic binary. The third type is an eclipsing binary. Now that's a special case. That's when it's just set where the star happens to be aligned so that one star as they orbit, one star passes in front of the other. So it's an eclipse. It eclipses the star. What happens if you have have a faint star pass in front of a brighter star, the amount of light that you're going to see coming from it is going to be less. Because when that faint star is in front, okay, it's smaller, it can't block out the entire star, but it blocks out some of the light coming from the star and the amount of light we see coming from the star will dip down. And it will do it every certain number of days depending on how the stars are orbiting. If they're orbiting with a period of five days, every five days the star will get fainter. And the example of this is the star Algol, the demon star. Algol is a bright star in the constellation of Perseus. And if you've done mythology or something, Perseus was killed in the Medusa. And the Algol represents the head of Medusa. Because it was this very unusual star because it, it is, it's an eclipsing binary. Of course, they didn't know that, but they knew that this star was a certain brightness most of the time, but every once in a while, for a few hours, it would get faint. It would get a little, it would get fainter to the visible eye, not just where, oh yeah, if you measure, astronomer measures it very carefully, they can get it. No, you could see it with your eye. You can actually look at it 
and determined that it's fainter. So that's why it was an unusual star and it got named, you know, the head of Medusa. You know, the evil demon star because it was changing and remember going back to the history, what were stars weren't supposed to change. They were supposed to be constant. So this one had to be something evil going on with this one. Okay, it's not. All it is is another star passing in front of it. But thousands of years ago, when the constellations were being developed, that wasn't known. But that's what's happening with Algol. Another fainter star passes in front of the brighter star, which is what you normally see. And when it, it dips down, it'll make it a little bit fainter, noticeably. And if you measure it carefully, actually, when the other star, when the fainter star goes behind and you lose its light, it gets a little bit fainter. So that's why you see these multiple dips here. You get one big dip when the bright star is eclipsed, and you get a littler dip when the faint star is eclipsed, because it's not putting out as much energy. And that repeats on a very regular basis. So you can go watch it. You can go look up. Um, you know, fall time, fall time now. Perseus is up. You can go on to like the websites and you can see when the minima of Algol will occur. So when Algol will appear at its faintest. And then you'll be able to, you can go through and you can actually look for it to actually dim. So it's something you can actually see. But those are three different types of binary stars. Visual, spectroscopic, and eclipsing. You need one of those to be able to determine the mass of a star. Again, the easiest one is right here because you see the whole orbit. You can actually see the entire orbit. These ones, you can get the period very easily, but you've got to work. There's more complicated methods to try to determine how far apart everything is, to determine the size of the orbit. But period is very easy, right? How long does it take for one orbit? From one minima to the next minima. If I can fix it, it's orbiting every five days, six days, eight days, whatever it is. That's very easy to determine. To determine the sizes, you can work through some of this and figure out roughly, okay, the orbit has to be so big. It's a little more work to do on those than it is with the visual. But it still can be done. Again, if the star is not one of these, if it's not orbiting, if you don't have something else orbiting with it, then we have no way to directly determine the mass. So what do the masses look like? Well, one solar mass, right? Everything's relative to the sun. And you'll continue to see that because you'll see, hear me talk about other stars as we talk about the, how stars go through their lives. And when we talk about galaxies, we'll talk about everything in terms of masses of the sun. So one solar mass, that's the sun. That's where it would be. The smaller stars with less mass are further down to the right-hand, lower right-hand side of the main sequence. The bigger, more massive stars are to the upper left-hand side. So one solar mass right about in the middle. You can get stars that are about a tenth the mass of the sun. You can get stars that are 10, maybe up to even 100 times the mass of the sun. But mass tells us where it'll end up on the main sequence. Okay, and I think I think I just have the summary to do. So we timed it just about right. Oh nope, there's the distribution of masses. Stellar mass distributions. Stars that are a quarter the stars are the mass of the sun or less make up 40, 69, 79, 88. 88% of the stars. So stars, the mass of the sun or less is about 88% of the stars. If you add in the ones that are only twice as big as the sun, you're up to 96% of the stars. Those very big massive stars are this little tiny portion here. Stars that are more than four times the mass of the sun are only 
0 0.8%, 0 0.3, 20, 0.06%. There are, there are a lot of little stars, not very many big stars. We just see the big stars. Now there's a couple reasons for that we'll come back to, but a big one is also turns out is that those big stars don't live very long. So when we take a snapshot of them, if a star lives 10 billion years, we're going to see lots of them. But if a star only lives a million years, you're not going to see too many of them because lots of them are gone. So let me finish up. I'm just going to go through the summary real quick. We'll run a little bit over, but you can take your 10 minute break after. That way we're done with this chapter and I will go back and do the HR diagram on Monday. So distances, par par parallax is how we use the nearest stars. Apparent brightness or apparent magnitude is what we see from the Earth. It depends on the distance and the absolute luminosity, absolute magnitude. Spectral classes talk to us about the temperatures. So spectral class means a temperature. So O stars are very hot stars, M stars are very cool stars. The size of a star depends on the luminosity and the temperature. So if we change the luminosity of a star or the temperature of a star, we can tell something. We can, they're all, the size, the luminosity, and temperature are all interrelated. And HR diagram, again, we're going to come back to that on Monday. I'm going to go through it in a little more detail. Essentially, it's a plot of luminosity against temperature. And we found that 90% of the stars were on the main sequence, that band going from the upper left to the lower right. Distances were extended. We used spectroscopic parallax, which again had nothing to do with parallax, but was a spectroscopic method of determining distances. So we used, sort of used the HR diagram, determine the temperature of a star, determine the spectral class, determine the temperature, determine the, abso the absolute magnitude, the absolute brightness of it, and use that to get a distance. If a star is in a binary system, we can measure the mass. If it's not, we can estimate it based on comparing it to other stars. And finally, mass, and we're going to come back to this a lot again over the next couple of chapters. We're going to be doing this a lot. Mass determines where the star lies on the main sequence, and it also determines what's going to happen to it. So where it will go and what will happen to it afterwards. So finished up about on time. Okay, so I'm going to stop. I'm stop we're done there. We're finished chapter 10. Yay. And chapter 10 is most of what you need for the homework, because I'm not going to chapter 11 next. I'm doing a little aside on the HR diagram, probably on Monday, and then we'll go to chapter 11. So that'll almost bring us back on, almost get us back on schedule, only be about a day behind. So go ahead and take your break if you need to stretch a little bit, and then we'll come back. I'll get the computers booted up for the, for the lab.